Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello, I'm joined today by Kori Shaki, who is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, um, where she focuses on military history. And she's also a board member of the Center for European Reform. And she's here for a CER board meeting, which is why I'm thrilled that she's going to join us for the podcast today. Welcome, Kori. Um, we're going to talk about, perhaps that's no surprise, President Donald Trump and what he means for Europe. Um, and I want to start, I think, by the big question, which is how should Europeans approach Trump? Um, two contradictory ideas are sort of emerging at the moment. On the one hand, we know that Europeans depend on the transatlantic alliance. They depend on the United States security guarantees and its business as well. Um, and people say that they should take a pragmatic approach. They should deal with Trump wherever they can, bilaterally, if that's what he prefers. They should offer him partnership without getting on the liberal high horse and alienating the administration by preaching about the international order. On the other hand, um, there's a view that Europeans can only play a role or have a voice in world politics if they are united in an alliance. And the European Union... Um, can only exist really on the principles that Trump rejects. So multilateralism, solidarity, and it would falter in a world of protectionism and nationalism and bilateral deals. From your perspective, what is the right approach? I think uh, you are underestimating European influence in world politics, first of all. Um, and I think um, it's not just as a voice for values, it's as, a, as an actor shaping events in the world. The choices that you make about how to deal with the Egyptian government or not, uh, what kind of trade policy you want with China, uh, whether Europeans embrace, as I believe they are, that China is not just rising for the United States, it's rising for Europe as well, and how we tangle with all of these problems. So, so my first salvo would be to say that Europeans shouldn't underestimate their own influence. My answer to the question that you pose about whether Europeans should look to have a pragmatic relationship with the new American administration um, or whether you should uh, let us know where you stand. It is true that Americans are used to being condescended to by Europeans, and it won't be news that you will again do so in the Trump administration. But it's not a particularly effective strategy. You know, um, Angela Merkel, right after... Um, Uh, Donald Trump was elected, felt the need not just to scold him in private, but then to repeat in public her condescension to him. And more than once since, right, the German Foreign Office or the Chancellery leaks that she had to explain the Geneva Convention to him. And I don't actually doubt that she had to explain the Geneva Convention to him. What is at issue is whether it is an effective strategy for handling an erratic and potentially damaging American president to grandstand in public in a way that makes him less likely to share concerns when you have concerns. So I would argue that Europeans are best served by resisting the impulse to explain to us American provincials that we are about to be the collapse of Western civilization um, and instead, exercise what you know about American politics, which is that 
We are a tumultuous society and our institutions have very rigorous checks and balances. And that while Donald Trump's election is cause for concern for many, including many Americans, that doesn't actually make it a useful policy approach for Europeans um, to, to explain to us things we already know. That's very clear. Thank you. Um, I want to follow up on your comment about checks and balances. So here in Europe, we're obviously following the American political establishment debates about coming to grips with the Trump presidency. We've been following the literally versus seriously debate, which I think has now been put to bed and we should take him both literally and seriously, I, I believe it's the, the answer. But um, one thing you hear a lot here is Europeans who are optimistic because they have the hopeful view that the checks and balances of the American political system can tame Trump's more extreme views. Um, and particularly the Republican Party, the Congress, the judiciary, not just the Supreme Court justices, but also people like the judge who overturned the immigration ban, the travel ban, um, and Trump's political appointees for Europeans, obviously particularly important uh, Secretary of Defense General Mattis, in the NATO context, can somehow limit Trump's more extreme views. What, after the first couple of months of the administration, uh, weeks, what of the first couple of weeks of the administration? It just seems like it's been ages. I know. <laughs> Is your view on that? Yeah, I think that's basically right. Um, you know, I am among those who believe President Trump's a genuine danger. I was among the signatories of the letters saying that we considered among conservatives that we considered him unfit. Uh, and um, so, so I share the concerns that folks have, but I do think the last two weeks have shown in a way that's been heartening just how vibrant American civil society is just how strong federalism's constraints Uh, can be. I mean, the great state of California in which I live is going to be the kind of opposition to the Trump administration that the state of Texas was to the Obama administration. They are going to be litigating every single policy. One of the things we have already seen is that the police department in San Francisco is going to, is not going to renew cooperation with the federal government. Uh, because they don't want to provide immigration information that would be deleterious to California citizens, given the trend of Trump's executive order on immigration. I think we're actually going to see a lot of that kind of stuff, where the judiciary, like Americans are all getting an education on civics that we don't get in school anymore. We're living it out in the country. And that's great. And um, I found it enormously heartening that when the executive order on immigration came out, so many Americans crowded airports to make clear their objection and their support for our fellow Americans who were being hassled by this, um, for green card holders and for visitors and students to the country. I mean, Donald Trump has made an American Civil Liberties Union member out of me. And I would not have believed that was possible. <laughs> so, so I do think the checks and balances are going to kick in and, and people are, are breathless right now in part because of the juggernaut of executive orders. 
But once agencies get staffed and once Congress begins to legislate these issues, I think it will provide powerful constraints. Also, the cabinet appointments are, for the most part, very sensible, very establishment figures um, who pointedly don't agree with the president's views on things. I mean, Jim Mattis, our Secretary of Defense, I I write with him quite often when he was still a fellow out at the Hoover Institution, and he has said repeatedly, both before he was nominated and since, that countries that have allies succeed and countries that don't fail. It So the president knew that when he appointed him and appears to be giving him and Secretary Tillerson and soon uh, Dan Coates, former senator from Indiana, who's now the uh, director of national intelligence, giving them latitude to make more sensible policies than President Trump himself evidently favors. Here, here. Um, moving on to Russia as Europe's powerful neighbor um, and in light of the strained relations of the last years, Europeans obviously take a particular interest in the Trump administration's strategy on Russia, um, on sanctions or revoking them on Ukraine and Crimea and on working together in Syria against what Trump calls Islamist terrorism. Um, we have heard some fairly contradictory interpretations over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> that was so diplomatic. <laughs> I try. <laughs> From your conversations and insights um, into US politics, where do you see the Trump administration going on Russia? I so wish I had a good answer to that, but I don't. I, I think the biggest foreign policy risk that President Trump poses is is this strange fascination for Vladimir Putin and blind spot to how damaging Russia is in the world, how contrary to both Western values and interest, Vladimir Putin's Russia uh, has chosen to define itself the terrible violence they visited in Crimea and continue to visit in Ukraine, and the ominous nature of their efforts to intimidate countries uh, along their borders. I mean, the Russian government really does seem to believe it is safest if it destabilizes everyone around them. And that's profoundly dangerous, not just for Europe, but also for the United States. And President Trump is just blithely uninterested in that. And uh, my solace, to go back to your question about checks and balances, is that, as you will remember from sanctions on Iran, uh, the Congress actually controls that. And I'm quite confident that the president would have an impossible time, given Russian interference in our elections, persuading Congress to lift sanctions on the Russian. I do believe the president would do it, left to his own devices. I don't believe Congress will comply. But but the policy more generally, it, it, he, the president is unsound on this. I would not be at all surprised to see the White House try and come up with a grand bargain with the Russians. Uh, more nuclear reductions, a sort of tacit agreement to spheres of influence. I mean, 
It strikes me as not coincidental that after President Trump's phone call with Vladimir Putin, the Russians ramped way up their violence in Ukraine. Um, so either they have a tacit agreement with President Trump, or the Russians are just trying to make it appear they have a tacit agreement with President Trump. Either one of those things is damaging. But I do think the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and others in the administration um, understand the value of Western solidarity and intend to uphold it. Okay, I want to talk about Western solidarity and NATO in a bit, but just to to possibly ask, where do you think the president is coming from on Russia? Because it's fairly clear to me what Putin and what the Kremlin can get out of this alliance. What does DC, what does the President Trump want from Putin? Again, I wish I I wish I had a good answer to that. I don't. Um It is hard for me to see what the Russians could provide. My guess is that President Trump thinks of himself as a wheeler and dealer and somebody who can get better agreements. And he's not wrong that, that U.S.-Russian confrontation um, is a bad thing and it would be a great thing, right? Every new American president tries to reset relations with difficult countries. And well, they should. That's one of the advantages of peaceful transitions of power. Uh, but I have a hard time seeing what I can see lots of things the Russians would like us to give up. I have a difficult time seeing what the Russians uh, can provide that would be worth that. The one possible Uh, area where I see a trade-off is I could see the Trump administration offering arms control and possible some relaxation of sanctions if the Russians sever their links to Iran and give us the ability to contain Iran's malevolent influence in the Middle East. I've tried this theory out on folks. No Middle East expert agrees with me. They think Iran's much too important. Um, so, so it's hard to see, to be honest. I think it's, I think President Trump is just soft on Russia. And as we saw with the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, which he was willing to withdraw from without getting anything for that enormous gift to the government of China. We, we may well trade something for nothing. Hmm. We've learned that Trump will be attending NATO's next summit in Brussels, end of April or beginning of May, I think. So on NATO, Trump's statements have been particularly confusing and worrying for Europeans. So from calling the alliance obsolete and outdated to saying that he's 100% behind NATO, we have heard it all. Um, right now, it looks like the US will remain committed to the alliance, but demand much more from its European partners. And in a way that is not new. So it's not news that, that Europeans need to spend more on de defense, um, that, to, that they need to take a greater share of the burden uh, within the alliance. And any US president has said that in the past, and any US president would have said that, I think. Uh, Trump is being less polite about it and more openly transactional on this issue. He's questioning the unconditional alliance solidarity at the core of collective defense a bit more than I think any other presidential candidate or president would have done. But he has also signaled that he wants NATO to um, 
focus more on its southern borders and engage in counter-terrorist activities more so than it's doing right now. So the question to you is, what can, what should Europeans do in preparation of the summit with NATO? Uh, so the first thing uh, is that President Trump's talking a whole lot of nonsense about NATO. And you should take this as a measure of not just ignorance, but indifference, that he's all over the map on it. But it's also true that he's all over the map on most things. Um, so, so the challenge is actually for, for counterpart world leaders is how to, um, how to get him out of erratic confrontational space and into cooperative space, which is why, um, governments, uh, condescending to him is such an unhelpful strategy. I actually think the NATO summit's going to be great, right? It, it, the institution understands how to do this well. It will be an opportunity for here to he for President Trump to hear from his counterparts in a cooperative, positive setting where American power is greatly appreciated and where um, hearing the concerns of smaller NATO nations on the front line with Russia may impact his views. And I'm confident that the secretaries of state and defense uh, will manage uh, the president as well as the allies in ways that facilitate that. And NATO will do the same. So I'm not worried about the summit being a high drama disaster. But uh, I think it's important for Europeans to really take on board the point that you made, which is that Donald Trump may be ruder than everybody else, but he is actually reflecting broad-based American public opinion that Europeans expect an awful lot of us and don't expect enough of themselves on defense policy. It gets reflected in spending. It gets reflected... Um, in a lot of other areas. And again, as you said, um, you know, every American president of my political lifetime has argued Europeans aren't doing enough. We keep coming up with these new NATO, the Defense Capabilities Initiative, the one thing and another to try and make it palatable for Europeans to spend more of their government money on defense and Europeans keep not doing it. Sadly, I think the actual stimulus um, to it is President Trump's election, namely the decline of confidence in the United States as a security partner is actually going to be a really interesting real-time test for Europeans because Russia is growing more aggressive, more dangerous, and the United States is growing less reliable. And and so Europeans have choices to make, which will, in my judgment, require greater self-reliance from them. Yeah, we've published a piece here at the CR a couple of months ago that was called... Um, could U.S. first mean European defense at last? <laughs> that's the one, the one hope I have from, from this presidency. You've mentioned uh, TPP earlier, and Europeans obviously are not the only U.S. allies that are worried. Um, 
you live and work on the West Coast and in California. So perhaps I can ask you to look across the Pacific um, and talk about what you think will be the effects and consequences of the end of TTIP, Trump's hostile rhetoric on China and um, diplomatic gaffes more recently, like his conversation with the Australian Prime Minister for America's global alliances. Yeah, it's a hard time to be optimistic about America's role in the world. And as Alex Stubbs just said in our board meeting, um, that there is a power vacuum because the United States is stepping back from a leadership role and we are going to be consumed with our domestic balance of power uh, for the next several years. And that's going to leave a whole bunch of openings for good actors and for bad You know, the Chinese are already moving to fill the power vacuum of the collapse of the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, and you can't blame them. It's a smart move on their part. It's a completely self-inflicted wound by us to walk away from it. Um, the European trading agreement was probably already dead and not because of the United States. So, you know, Europeans are wringing their hands and complaining about America on trade policy, but, but Europe was not going to give us a transatlantic trade agreement yeah, right. on any terms. So, uh, so that's again an area where Europeans might benefit from resisting the temptation, uh, to scold Americans about our violations. I think we're likely to see a move towards bilateral or trilateral trade agreements. And in fact, trade has been going that way for some time. The collapse of the Doha round, um, it seems to me that it doesn't have to be the end of the liberal trading order, but it will certainly be the end of large multinational trading agreements, which means things are going to get much more complicated. Uh, and many of the benefits of globalization are going to be frittered away um, by the sand that's being poured in the gears of issues like trade. Thank you so much, Corey, for, for recording with this with us. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London. <laughs>